My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, protective, unflappable, loyal, complicated, powerful, honest, lyrical. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, extraordinary. I really felt this unconditional love. I mean, it's funny how, like, what is it that stays with you, you know, decades later? It's not a particular memory. It's not her telling me every day I love you. It's more just a feeling. This is Our Mothers Ourselves, and I'm Katie Semro, filling in for Katie Hafner as your host this week. Hi, Meg. It's great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Oh, Katie, I am so pleased to be here. I can't tell you. This is really a treat for me. Wonderful. Thank you. So if you want to just go ahead and introduce yourself and your mom. Sure. So my name is Meg Luther Lindholm. I am a longtime radio podcast producer. I grew up on the East Coast. I lived in New York for many years and produced some shows there. And then I moved out to Fargo, North Dakota about 18 years ago. And now I'm on the cusp of moving again back to the East Coast. So that's me in a nutshell. Great. And your mom? My mother was born Mary Bishop. Her mother was also named Mary. So at some point she became Molly, Molly Bishop. And then when she married my father, she became Molly Bishop Luther. And she was a musician really from childhood. She took up the piano at some point when she was quite young and really put a lot into that and became quite good. And then she went on to graduate studies in musicology and later in composition. She decided at the ripe age of about 35 or 36 that she wanted to become a composer. And she devoted the rest of her life uh, or most of the rest of her life to pursuing that. Um, And this was uh, when I was already in the picture. I was about five or six when she went back to school to start studying composition. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So we'll come back to that. But first, I just wanted to ask you, how would you describe her, sort of her personality to someone who's never met her before? Well, I think the word that comes to mind is passionate. She was really a passionately engaged person, both with music and with me and with the people in her life that she loved She had a lot of interests and she just radiated uh, kind of a warmth. You know, it's not like passion in the sense of someone who comes and slaps you on the back and just, you know, talks to you about whatever they want to talk about for an hour. She was very empathic and really radiated a, a warmth and interest in other people. That's great. Okay, let's go back. So you said she's born Mary Bishop. Where was she born and when and what was her childhood like? She was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1927. And at a young age, I don't know exactly how old, the family moved to New Canaan, Connecticut. Um, And that's really where she spent the formative years of her childhood, her Father commuted into New York City for a job. He was in business. Her mother stayed home, but I think had many activities 
You know, it's hard to say because she didn't talk a lot about her childhood, but I know that she, you know, was playing the piano and practicing. She got into horseback riding and became quite proficient as a horseback rider. Um, she did well in school. She was quite beautiful. And I think people were just really attracted to her. Again, she just kind of radiated this interest in other people that people responded to. She actually was sent to boarding school for high school. I think that was actually hard on her to be sort of shunted off. But I think she did well. And she was voted, you know, all sorts of most likely to succeed was one of the captions, you know, under her picture in the yearbook. So in some ways, I think outwardly, it looked like she had a really charmed life. You know, I think money wasn't really a problem. She was able to do all these different activities. They lived in a really nice house, you know, so sort of like this book childhood. But, you know, I think, of course, as with many childhoods, there was more to it than that. Did you get the sense that there was like a particular thing going on or was it she just never said? There were a few things. I think one of the really hard emotional issues that occurred when she would have been somewhere between the age of 10 and 13, her parents divorced and her father, I guess, basically fell in love with his secretary And after my mother's parents divorced, he ended up marrying this other woman. So that was very painful. My mother adored her father. And then on top of that, he moved with his second wife from Connecticut to Chicago. Um, And likewise, her mother married a guy who was rather taciturn and, you know, not a warm, fuzzy guy. So you know, suddenly her family is split and each parent marrying somebody that she doesn't particularly care for, feel a connection to. So I think that had to have just been so hard on her. Um, And she, you know, soldiered through it. She didn't fall apart in any, you know, significant sense when she was young. But I think it all got, it all got, hmm, held within. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so she goes off to boarding school and then to Wellesley for college. What did she study at Wellesley? So interestingly, you know, uh, Wellesley had a, had a strong, uh, music program, but she was a Bible history major that was probably back in that time that was considered one of the best majors. And I don't exactly know why. She also became uh, president of the college's Christian Student Association. Again, these are things that she never really talked about after the fact or when I was growing up. She, I'm not exactly sure what she felt. I'm inferring that maybe she felt like she studied the wrong thing or she wishes she had studied music in a more focused way at college. And for whatever reason, she didn't. And so she made some really good lifelong friends there. I think in certain respects, it was a 
really good experience. One of her best friends became my godmother, who became like a second mother to me. Okay, so what happens after she graduates? After she graduates, she, um, you know, it was the aftermath of World War II. Europe was in ruins. There was a lot of recruiting going on by international and U.S. aid agencies of young people post-college to go to Europe and help out with, um, you know, the, the rebuilding effort. She went over, I believe, to Belgium with a good friend of hers. Um, for a time. And then she came back. She wanted to study music at this point, but her father said, no, he was not going to pay for her to study music. He would pay for her to go to secretarial school. And so she settled for that, which, you know, makes me really sad. But at the time, again, this would have been about like 1950. That's kind of what a lot of young women did. And I suppose even young women with really good college educations and degrees. So she got a job as a secretary at Columbia University for the Russian Institute, which is where my father was getting his PhD. And she was sent over to his apartment one day to pick up some sort of a manuscript to type for him. And I don't remember if it was she or my father who talked about, you know, just her ringing the doorbell and he opens the door. And I don't know if it was love at first sight, but I think it was certainly interest at first sight. (laughs) And that's what put them in each other's orbit. And then um, they ended up getting married They got married at the chapel at Harvard University. My father was doing some work there and they had a couple of friends and um, my mother's sister was there and and they got married. It was a very small wedding and and that was in 1952. Okay, so then after they're married, is your mom still working as a secretary during this or? Well, she was, but... At a certain point, she did decide, and maybe with my father's support and backing, she ended up enrolling at Columbia in a musicology program. So she got a master's in musicology sort of in the mid-50s. But that was kind of like, almost like a detour. It wasn't like really hitting the nail on the head as far as, you know, being exactly what she wanted to do. And then my father... um went to the Soviet Union. It was still the Soviet Union in the late 50s to do research for his PhD dissertation. And my mother enrolled at the Royal College of Music in London, and she studied piano. And it was there that she, I think, got encouragement to study composition. She wrote a piece that won some sort of an award And I think it was from that experience that she started to feel like she was never going to be a concert pianist. And I think as time went on, that was less really what she wanted. But there was something about writing music that I think really appealed to her. So they came back to the States not long before I was born. And and then I was born. So that sort of put a halt to, you Mm. know, really pursuing composition she dedicated herself to being a mother and 
I think that was also kind of hard on her as much as she wanted a child and really doted on me. And I felt that very much. I didn't feel as a young child, like she was chomping at the bit to be doing something else. I really felt this unconditional love. I mean, it's funny how, like, what is it that stays with you, you know, decades Mm. later? It's not a particular memory. It's not her telling me every day, I love you. It's more just a feeling. She was my, she was my security blanket. She was my encourager. She was the one who introduced me to activities, things that I enjoyed doing. She, she set the boundaries of my world. She made sure I was safe. She made sure, you know, that it's just like all these things that a parent who really loves their child does and, and you feel it. So what you're left with is just the residual feeling of knowing that you were loved. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Okay. And so she goes back. Where does she study this time? Yeah, when she went back to school in in the mid-60s, she went to the Manhattan School of Music, which is a top music conservatory in New York City. She was told, even though she was in her mid-30s and she had a master's in musicology and a BA from Wellesley, she was told that if she wanted to study composition, she would have to essentially go back to square one and get another BA in composition. So that was a lot. And yeah. so my mother, you know, is, is, is attending classes and writing music and raising me. And, you know, here in her backyard are student demonstrations and protests. And, and it was just a, a kind of a wild time, you know, both yeah. in the life of our country, in New York, and in my mother's life as well. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a lot of things coming together there. How did she balance like being a student and being a mother at that time? I mean, I certainly have memories of her sitting. She had this kind of architect's drafting table. Mm-hmm. She would have like this big score, music score that she was writing notes on. And, you know, just I remember especially in relation to her symphonic work, the variants for orchestra. I just, I just kind of have memories of her being leaning over and writing music and playing passages on the piano. We had a baby grand piano in our apartment. But from the standpoint of my life, I mean, my father took me to school. And so she kind of had the days uh, until I came home, maybe around four or four thirty, you know, to go to school and and do her work. And I'm sure she stayed up too after I went to bed. So even though it sounds like it would be sort of impossible, um she made it work, at least up to a certain point. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So and then she graduates with a BA Yeah, she graduated with a BA in 1970, and the Variants for Orchestra, which was her sort of big symphonic work, was what was essentially like her thesis. Like, it was her big piece that she 
you know, submitted for her degree, I suppose everyone had to write something. I mean, this was a conservatory, right? It's not right. like a college where <laughs> right, right. you kind of pass your tests and, you know, if you get decent grades, you get your diploma. This was, I think, a little bit more like there were professional expectations and demands made of the students there. So that's why I think that the piece that she ended up producing was so much bigger than what you might think someone would do for a BA degree. But it is what she did, and it was performed by the Manhattan School of Music Orchestra in 1970. And I remember being able to get out of part of school for a day to go and attend the performance. And I don't really remember the performance very well. I more just sort of remember, you know, being there and then, you know, afterwards a little bit, but it's pretty hazy in my mind. But that was clearly a huge milestone. And I will say that leading up to the deadline to finish it, she was, she was kind of a mess. I mean, from the standpoint <laughs> of not sleeping enough, she had started drinking maybe as a way to calm her nerves. Also, her marriage to my father was very fraught and she would like, I remember waiting for her to go shopping or whatever. And she would just come really late. Like I would just be waiting and waiting and waiting. And, you know, it was because she was, you know, trying to finish up something or got lost in her work and forgot or whatever that, that was around the time when I started to notice that the balance was no longer there. It was, very much like her being just totally enmeshed in the composing and me standing, you know, at a store or a street corner and, and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was getting a little more than, than she could keep in balance. So how did your father feel about her composing work? Well, initially, so my father is a huge classical music lover. I mean, even to this day, he's in his 90s. Nothing transports him more than putting on a Brahms symphony or, um, yeah, he, he particularly loves Brahms. So I think, I think it was kind of like a dream come true for my father to meet this beautiful young wasp woman from this, you know, very well-to-do family. Um, she had this incredible education. She was warm, down to earth, funny, kind. And she was also as in love with music as he was. And so right. I think initially that formed a very solid bond between them. But as time went on and music became more and more her focus, and she wasn't working and my father started to feel very worried and anxious about money and not having enough money. And that became a source of friction between them. And then I think at a certain point, music started to seem more like an imposition rather than something that he should encourage her to pursue at all costs. I think he started to feel kind of impatient. Now, it had taken him eight years from the time they married until he got his first teaching job, you know, so it took him 
a very long time to work his way through his education. Right. But he just didn't, I guess, feel the same degree of, he didn't feel the same ability to support her through her music education. And so it actually, music then became more a bone of contention and a source of friction. And he stopped being able to kind of emotionally and financially support her. It all turned very ugly and, and is, you know, ultimately probably what led them to divorce in my, yeah, in my youth. Okay. Yeah. 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 That sounds, sounds sad. What did she do then? So she got her master's in 1974. That was the year of the famous Gerald Ford to New York City drop dead headline that was in the newspapers at the time. New York was in terrible financial debt and was on the verge of declaring bankruptcy. And President Ford basically said, you know, he was not going to bail out the city. And so this was a terrible time to be newly graduated (laughs) from a master's program in music. Like that was sort of the last kind of teaching job that any school was hiring for. In fact, they were letting go of all their music and art teachers. So my mother never had the career that she had envisioned for herself, which would have been made up of teaching, preferably on the college level, and then also mm-hmm. composing. That was her dream. And instead, she went back to being a secretary because it was a job she could get. And she was a reasonably fast typist. And so she did that. But she hated these jobs. And invariably, she'd get fired. And she'd come home and say, well, I was let go today. And it would just be like, oh, you know, this just tremendous deflating feeling. We were lucky in that my grandmother, her mother, really stepped up to help us out financially. And uh, so she was really a lifeline to us during those lean financial years when my mother was working sort of sporadically and not making much money. Okay, so I'm just going back a little bit when you said she's getting let go from these secretary jobs. Was there any particular reason like she she was getting bored with them or Yeah, I don't really know. I can only guess that she really wasn't interested. She didn't mm. like the jobs. I don't know if you know she was showing up late or just um not getting all the work done efficiently. Um you know, I just know that that wasn't what she wanted to be doing. And she was really struggling with depression. You know, she was really like, she felt like she had gambled and lost. She had gambled her marriage. She had gambled um, a lot of financial support. You know, I think my grandmother increasingly helped her pay for school. Um, there were loans. Um, and she just was, I think, miserable about all that. I think she, um, blamed herself, you know, why couldn't she have made something more of out of all of this opportunity that she had really struggled hard to get for herself. And 
everything seemed to be going well, and then suddenly it wasn't, and then it only got worse. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really hard. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then what happens? Alcohol had been an issue for her when she was younger. She had started drinking. Mm, It's hard to say. I I think she kind of used alcohol to self-medicate, you know, emotionally at different stages of her life. And she was always able to quit. And then she, she quit for a number of years during my childhood. And then she, she began drinking again when I was either a sophomore or junior in high school. And that sort of began a chapter of decline. It almost felt like she was kind of giving up on herself at that point. You know, she tried the music career. Um, she had tried these other jobs. It just sort of was like things just weren't working out. Nothing was really sticking. And it just seemed like she didn't really know how to kind of start over in some other way. But when she started drinking again, I think that's when just something in her kind of let go. You know, people always say, as long as you have hope, you can keep Mm -hmm. going. If you lose your hope in the possibility of something different, then it's really hard to sustain. And I think that for her was the thing that happened was she lost hope. And so she ended up taking her life. I was 19. I wasn't home when it happened. I was away, actually. I was taking a break from college and I had gone off to do a work experience and, you know, she had known that and had wished me well. And the plan was that I would come back and, you know, continue to be part of her life. But she, I think at that point felt that I was basically self-sufficient, that I wasn't going to disintegrate, which is true. I mean, it certainly left a scar. Yeah. But, you know, my life did go on. And I've never, you know, faulted her. I have, you know, I think certain people just take their lives very, and it's, it comes as a shock out of the blue to everybody who knows them. Like, oh my God, you right. know, no idea. Like this guy was in that kind of shape and right. going through such right. emotional stress and unhappiness. But with my mother, it was almost like plotting lines on a graph or dots on a graph, you know, that's just kind of going down. So it wasn't a surprise to me. I think I was very clear that that was a very distinct possibility. And then when it happened, I think my initial feeling was actually relief. Yeah. Odd as it is to say. No, it makes sense. Yeah. I think I just felt like, you know, okay, she's out of her pain. Yeah. And yeah, so that was her, yeah, her life, you know, it's, it's a lot of people's lives. It's, it's something that goes up and 
shows a lot of promise and then doesn't click and and circumstances play a role in that and your family plays a role in that and your own sense of self plays a role in that yeah what characteristic or characteristics stand out to you the most as the best parts of her mothering she was very affectionate i mean she was really someone who you know would put her arms around me would hug me i can remember being on you know hundreds of subway rides sitting next to her i'd put my head on her shoulder there was like a really comfortable physical intimacy between us it never extended over any lines it just felt really warm and loving and i think there was just yeah unconditional love that that's what i recall from her being you know in her healthy period which was a good portion of my childhood i would say even when she was battling her demons i never felt like they really spilled over to me. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Meg, for talking to me about your mother. Oh, thank you, Katie. Yeah, this brought up a lot for me. And yet I think it was really good to talk about her. She still lives inside me. And I still feel like her love has been a source of strength for me. Thank you for listening to Our Mothers, Ourselves. I'd like to say a special thank you to Meg for letting us use clips from Molly's Variants for Orchestra in this episode. If you'd like to hear more of Molly's music, you can do so at mollyluther.com. Meg has also done a piece on Molly for her podcast, Uplifted. And she's participated in Mother Mine. She's episode 22. You'll find links to all three of these in the show notes. Our theme music is composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mangin is our artist-in-residence. Today's show was produced by me, Katie Semro. Katie Hafner is our executive producer. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odra Deck Studios in San Francisco. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.